Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, to the Byline Times podcast from the Byline Times. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, Boris Johnson's Trump moment. The Prime Minister clung stubbornly to power despite 50 ministerial resignations. And even now, although he has said he will go, he keeps his position until the autumn. We'll hear from an all-star cast. First, though, just a reminder that Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are funded by subscribers to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper. We can report without fear or favour because there is no wealthy proprietor behind us asking us to delete stories that might offend their mates. Our funding comes from ordinary readers taking out subscriptions to the Byline Times. So, Please subscribe if you can. You get details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you have already taken out a subscription, we really do thank you. So at what point did Boris Johnson finally realise that he had to quit as Prime Minister? Was it when he was visited by Sir Graham Brady, chairman of the Backbench 1922 Committee, which had only recently given him a half-hearted vote of support? Was it when he decided to sack his old leadership rival, Michael Gove? Or when two ministers he'd appointed within the previous 48 hours, including his new Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, decided that they couldn't continue in his cabinet? We may never know, but one thing is for sure. Nothing befits Johnson more than his going. Britain's Trump, a populist with no regard for constitutional niceties, Just like Trump on January the 6th, Johnson tested our constitution to its limits before finally realising he had to go. And even then, as I say, he still isn't quitting immediately. He intends to remain in Downing Street until the autumn. Let's get Sam Bright to join in. Sam is the Byline Times chief investigations editor. How are you doing, Sam? You all right? Yeah, good, thanks. What what do you make of all this? Oh, I mean, what a couple of days. I feel as though I'm a veteran and we all are in political chaos after recent years, but even this has taken the biscuit, to be quite honest. Um, I think my, my, first, my first reflection is that, although it's fantastic that Boris Johnson has said that he's going to go, um, there are serious questions about our, our, the state of our constitution after him threatening not to go for several days. That's quite a perilous position and one in which we haven't really been in, at least in modern history. And also the, you know, we've cut the head off the viper, so to speak, potentially, uh, with his going. But there is still the underbelly of his nationalist populism still within um, the senior ranks of the Conservative Party, you know, um, the likes of Priti Patel, Dominic Raab, Steve Baker said that he might run for the leadership. So other Braverman has said that she definitely will. Liz Truss, of course, the Foreign Secretary. All these, all these people are fellow travellers in Boris Johnson's Brexit boat in recent years um, who've, who've stood um, on his platform and defended him in media appearances and have adopted the same sort of fact-free, free market um, populism that he has and so, although it's, you know, a day to perhaps breathe a small sigh of relief, um, you know, the, we, you know, it's still that worldview still hasn't been removed from the Conservative Party or from the government and not by a long stretch. 
There is also, I think, a suspicion that Johnson will still attempt somehow to hang on. He seems to have this delusional belief in his own infallibility. Somebody joked to me yesterday that even as the the men in grey suits were approaching 10 Downing Street, he's the kind of guy who'd be bundling himself out of the back window to run away from them. His, His ability to withstand what most politicians would regard as outright public humiliation is... I mean, it's almost unfathomable unless you see him as some kind of deluded narcissist. Yeah, this is really strange, this promise that, you know, he'll stay on until a successor is found. And of course, that's the usual protocol. But the only reason that Boris Johnson would really do it is to have a dignified exit, which he clearly hasn't pursued over the past few days. He doesn't seem to be bothered about that. He just wants to burn everything down on the way out. Um, And so you have to, you have to suspect and wonder if there's any other motive at play, whether there's one last hand that he's, he's trying to deal um, perhaps in the chaos of a, of a leadership election and no um, outright front runner being decided that, that Johnson might try and reassert himself. But, you know, we can we can only hope that he, he sticks to his word for the first time in his political career and actually goes quietly from office rather than having to be dragged out by um, Her Majesty the Queen. The fact that Johnson will resign as Conservative Party leader does not preclude him, does it, from standing again as Conservative Party leader. And this buys him time, which he's been a master at buying time through various scandals, not least Partygate, where there was a very timely intervention for Johnson by the Metropolitan Police at the point at which pressure against him seemed to be growing. Although, subsequently, there were 126 fines handed out to people involved in illegal gatherings at Downing Street. And He had said previously that he would resign if he was one of those, and he was, and he didn't. By the time Partygate came over, we'd had the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and it it was sufficient cover for his colleagues in the Conservative Party to say, oh, well, we can't really drop the pilot now. Mm. So, again, I I mean, from what we've seen over the past few days, and indeed during his premiership, am I... Am I being deluded to think that Johnson might try again and might put himself throw his own hat back into the ring? I mean, I think it's. I think it is highly unlikely. I think the mechanisms of the Tory Party will probably avoid this from happening, and and you probably have a mass walkout of leadership contenders if uh, Johnson tried to to reassert himself. I think his his standing in the Conservative Party is really has been shattered. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but um, I, I just wanted to go back and write columns. You know, I, when we when we had jo- Boris Johnson uh, blathering on in the margins of the Daily Telegraph, we all thought it was a, a great pain in the backside. But now I cannot wait for him to um, retreat back to Lake Como and to be typing out his um, his inane ramblings again. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the story of the past few months has been quite quite remarkable, and I think his. His, as you say, his delusions are are, fa- are fascinating. I, I almost feel as though he has this this childish instinct, even even an addiction, to 
to want to convince people of his lie in the same way that, you know, when, when children have, have um, you know, perhaps punched their buddy in the arm and the teacher comes over and they ask who did it and they point at someone else and then they giggle when they manage to convince the teacher that it wasn't them. That seems to be Boris Johnson's whole political career. He seems to derive a thrill, a sense of power from being able to convince very prominent high-ranking people and the population at large that he wasn't the one punching in the face repeatedly. Um, and then he's, he's concocted this mandate myth to suggest that because he, he alone won 14 million votes at the last election, that he should have had the opportunity to carry on despite the fact that 15, uh, 15 million people or more voted for other political parties and the fact that we don't have a presidential system, so they didn't, in fact, vote for Boris Johnson. You know, only a few thousand people voted for him in his constituency. And even then, it was pretty marginal. And it was looking like he might lose that constituency at the next general election. So yeah, I, I, think- I found that one of the most insidious arguments from Johnson's camp, the idea that he had some kind of legitimacy. And of course, as we've discussed many times on Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, he's pandered to by newspapers like the Daily Mail, like the Telegraph, like the Sun. And the Mail certainly played up to this notion that he had legitimacy. No, he didn't. No, he did not. We do not have a presidential system in the United Kingdom. He is not the president. His party in our first-past-the-post system, albeit with a minority of votes, but with our first-past-the-post system, managed to acquire a substantial majority of seats. That's how it works in this country. But it's the party which has the most seats that can form the government And the prime minister is the person who is elected by that party. Now, there may be many flaws with that system, but that is the system that we have and most of the mainstream parties subscribe to it. But we did not elect Boris Johnson as our leader. The Mm. people of this country under our system elected the Conservative Party and the Conservative Party elected Boris Johnson. So once his power and authority dwindles within the the Conservative Party, he has no legitimacy to rule Mm. this country, to lead this country. And the question is, where has he got this delusion from, except for just sort of picking it at random and believing that it's the most expedient route for him to stay in power? And I think perhaps, in part, it might be looking over the Atlantic, but I think um, in larger part, it's Brexit. And if you remember after the Brexit vote, um, people who believed in the project continuously repeated the line that X number of people, I think it was the same amount of people. I could be wrong. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but 14 million people voted for Brexit. He's tr- he was trying to revive this argument um, and and that was essentially a presidential that was essentially a presidential vote. Not only did it eventually install Boris Johnson um, as prime minister, but it, it didn't elect a party in a convention in a conventional sense. It, it you know was was um, you know it backed a one one national campaign rather than a slate of of candidates um, in a very in a very vague way, and 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 insisted that it was an unlimited mandate. So. As we all remember, it was asserted that um, a second referendum was undemocratic. And you could sort of see those same arguments being rolled out by Boris Johnson yesterday, that I have an unlimited mandate. I won in 2019. um, I'm the president. 
um, and you will you will shut up and you will you will listen to me in perpetuity. And to to that extent, I do think that Brexit has had quite a quite a toxic and damaging effect on um, political discourse when people can make those sort of arguments. Uh, Sam, stay there for a while if you would. I know that uh, Sean Norris, as well, our Byline Times colleague, is listening. Sean, by all means, request a microphone and we'd be delighted to let you in and keen to get as many people on air and share as many perspectives as we can as possible here on Byline Radio or if you're listening on Catch Up to the Byline Times podcast. And don't forget to support our work by taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. Go to bylinetimes.com. There you'll get details of how to subscribe to our wonderful monthly newspaper. Uh, Abby Lawrence is with us. Hello, Abby. Welcome. Just tap off your microphone, Abby, and you can join us in conversation. Hello, Abby. Abby's got to get the hang of tapping her microphone. How about Cathy? Hello, Cathy. Hi, Adrian. Good morning, everyone. Hello. <laughs> What an unprecedented, well, not unprecedented, I hate that word these days, but uh, what a what a fitting and, um, you know, typical way of him going out, isn't it? Controversy. A um, couple of points. I completely agree with everything Sam is saying there. Um, I just wanted to say with regards to, you know, um, with him stating this morning that he wants to sort of like linger on and going in the autumn, um, based on what we've seen in America, based on Murdoch, based on the front of the sun this morning, very Jan 6 kind of like, you know, um, echoes um, in that headline. I think this is the most dangerous time for him now. Um, He's a wrecking ball. Don't forget that. Um, his personalities of such. And I think it was um, James Ball uh, wrote a tweet earlier saying that, you know, he's always complaining how how skint he is, he hasn't got any money and things like that. Well, look at the liaison committee yesterday. He finally admitted to um, seeing the ex-KGB uh, chap Evgeny um, over in, um, in Italy. Um, it's extraordinary. The guys are now... A potential threat. I mean, if he's skint and he wants money, um, you know, I think it's I think it's dangerous to leave him there until the autumn. You you know what Murdoch's like. He's got form for um, inciting God knows what. Um, a lot can happen between now and then. I think it will be a big mistake if they just don't take his power off him now. Cathy, thank you very much indeed. I mean, it's an interesting point, Sam, in that, in a sense, that it's one of the oddities of the British Constitution that there is no mechanism to take power from him now. Um, yes, yeah, it certainly, it certainly is, and it's also quite surprising. I mean, the the rumblings were yesterday that the Conservative Party would not be happy about Johnson's remaining in post up to a new leader being found precisely because he'd intonated that he wouldn't he wouldn't depart, he wouldn't go quietly into the wind. There were even suggestions that Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, might come in as a caretaker boss, potentially. Uh, you know, the Roy Hodgson of um of British politics if you um to to see the job through. So I don't know whether this is a this is a compromise to that that Sir Graham Brady or other senior figures in the Conservative Party have sort of given him this fig leaf. You know, you can you can have your last few months in the role just to just to appease him um, and make sure that he does he does go out the door. 
I think they're certainly still they 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 are thinking the same thing though, aren't they? They are worried about these things. Mm. You know, I, I think they are thinking about that. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they are. They've, they've taken a I think they've taken a punt and they and they and they've taken a balance of risk that he is going to go. Um, and I, I, ultimately, I, I don't think that he will he will try he will try anything substantial on. And I think they've 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 made that they've made that calculation as well. I think what Cathy says about what he does after office is quite is is quite interesting and it and it will sort of it will show us what man he is and what sort of person the Conservative Party um put in down the street. You know, will he continue to go to the big parties at Lebedev's Palazzo? Will you know he he um, integrate himself once again with the Murdoch press um, and Rothermere and the Barclay brothers, etc. Uh, well, one Barclay brother that's left, um, and become a man of the media again. And I think that will that will shed a lot of light on the sort of person that we allow to 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 take control of this country. Uh, let's bring in Paul Mason, very experienced political reporter and uh, correspondent, writes for Byline Times as well. Hello, Paul. How you doing? Good morning. I'm considerably happier than I was 24 hours ago. <laughs> uh, Paul, Sam seems relatively sanguine that Johnson will go in the autumn. I've just seen too much of him, not least what we've experienced over these last 48, 72 hours. I'm not sure. You know, will there be an attempted counter-revolution, a counter-coup <laughs> by Johnson, do you think? Well, I think let, before addressing that, let's just for the listeners go step back a bit. Just step back to just take account of what's happened, because um, this was all triggered by a former uh, permanent secretary in the Foreign Office saying Johnson had lied over a critical question of whether he knew about Chris Pincher's alleged sexual uh assaults on people. Okay, um, now let's think about why that is, because. They, they put up with Partygate. They put up with uh, the Dominic Cummings fiasco. They put up with the Oliver Down, Dowden fiasco. What, why this? And I think the underlying answer to that is all of those um, events, the kind of Johnson era up to now, took place against the background of an economy that you could say was limping along. Uh, there was a special case of COVID. Uh, it was unusual. Now we're facing a recession. We're facing double-digit inflation. We had the uh, finance pundit Martin Lewis on Newsnight last night warning of civil unrest. Not civil unrest over Johnson, civil unrest over stuff like, uh, you know, Gilets jaunes-style anti-high uh, petrol price protests, which has already started. So for the Conservatives, there are, you know, the fact is they don't know what form Brexit should take because it was all based on a fantasy, the global Britain fantasy. And so the... You know, in, we have this co quaint concept in politics, which we used to use called fractions of capital. That is, different factions within the ruling elite now have very different visions of A, what Britain should become, and B, how the Conservatives stay in power. And I think what, what happened in the last 48 hours, they realised that Johnson had become dysfunctional to solving that. That's what my explanation, my 101, why we've got it. What happens, I think he's only been forced, in the end, by Michelle Donnell and, and Nadim Zahawi, people he'd already appointed 24 hours ago, going into him and saying, you can't go on. 
Okay, so he's now saying he'll resign as Tory leader, but stay on as prime minister. That is, as others have pointed out, a dangerous moment. Because as that factional battle pans out, you know, what we've got, we've got the ultra-hard Brexiteers, the people who want to deregulate the entire economy, rip up the Northern Ireland Protocol, probably stage a trade war with Europe. We've got the Austerians around Sunak and probably Javid, who are saying, look, you can't go on throwing money at the crises you create. You've got to cut taxes. You've got to cut spending. You've got to attack the working class. The, this will be, now be a battle that plays out with Johnson sitting in number 10 over months as the kind of ringmaster. And I think it's already clear that he will back Nadawi, uh, Nadawi has stolen a march on everyone. And Nadawi's first thing, really, he will cut or reverse the corporation tax rise, you know, handing billions, probably 25 billion plus, back to business while ordinary families starve. And we, poor saps, are sitting here on, on a Twitter space. We've got no power over that whatsoever. That's the situation we find ourselves. So I think it's dangerous. Uh, interesting that Martin Lewis would talk of civil unrest and as you say we've already seen that with people blockading motorways in protest at fuel price increases and so on uh, i was surprised if i'm honest that there was no protest at downing street it seemed for a, a day or two as though our democracy was being hijacked now it may be a little overegging it to compare this to january the 6th we don't have the Proud Boys and other groups. Thankfully, we don't have armed groups gathering to protest. Uh, and I wouldn't for a moment advocate for that. But there was a sense in which Johnson seemed to be clinging on, and, yeah. and which I fear he may attempt to continue or continue to attempt clinging on, <clears throat> despite the fact that his legitimacy was draining away. Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's well advised for people to stay away from Whitehall at the moment because it's already full of loons uh, trying to jump in front of TV cameras. Remember, during the prorogation crisis, and I think this was building into a repeat of the prorogation crisis, there would have been a clash with the palace at some point. Uh, during the prorogation crisis of September 2019, the BM, the, the kind of BMP Tommy Robinson brigade did go on the streets in Whitehall chanting Boris's name. And I, I don't think this is going to happen now. I mean, the wind's been taken out of the sails of the kind of Trumpian moment. But some, uh, I think somebody was saying before, Cathy, I think it was, that, you know, they've got months now in which the following narrative will come along. The, the Remainers in the Tory party are trying to steal our Brexit. The woke brigade are trying to reverse all the things that we've done. You know, all the kind of, remember the Sewell report, which said white working class boys are the most depressed people in Britain. All of that, there's a potential, if there are, a Tory candidate emerges, and this is why a load of right-wing loons are emerging as early candidates, Steve Baker, Suella Braverman, um, there's a potential that that narrative, A, gets a figurehead, you know, so that you've got uh, Dory's now saying cut abortion time limits. Um, one of them will emerge as a figurehead. Murdoch and the Rothermere papers will get behind them, and they'll try and restage the populist moment around someone else. I think many Conservative MPs have had enough of the populist moment and, and they want to return to just stable administration of, in a very sticky situation, global economic downturn, Ukraine war, Brexit going nowhere. But 
remember the the right wing press and and the kind of UKIP infiltrators in the Tory Party and all the Russian money. Let's not remember. Let's not forget that the Carol Cadwallader issue um, is all still there. And therein lies the danger. So we have to watch. I think we have to watch twenty four hours by twenty four hours. About you know, and, and, and say to people who've come on this space, I think spaces like this are going to be important. Uh, we didn't really have these in the prorogation crisis. And the more real time interconnection we can do, and sharing of knowledge and, and information, the better. Let's see if we can bring uh, Abby Lawrence into the conversation. Abby, just tap on your microphone, and hopefully you'll be able to have a chat with us. Hi, Abby. No, I'm not sure what uh, Abby's doing wrong. Abby, you need to be listening via your smartphone on the Twitter app. It's possible that you're listening to us, but not through that method. And if you're not, you're not able to join us. So you need to be listening on your smartphone via the Twitter app. I'm sorry we've not been able to get you on a couple of times. I'll bring in uh, Sean Norris from Byline Times as well. And Sean, listening to Paul talking about Nadine Dorries, talking about reducing abortion waiting, uh, uh, sorry, abortion time limits and so on. We spoke on the podcast recently about the Roe versus Wade moment and how that might be supported by some people in British politics. And uh, I think I tend to agree with Paul that the the populist moment certainly hasn't disappeared from British politics. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was with Paul at the uh, anti-progression protests and I remember very well the being kettled by the police because on either side of Whitehall there were these far-right activists who were determined to cause quite a lot of trouble. And, you know, those forces are still here. There's still a lot of discontent and you know, we're, we're going through multiple crises. We're going through a political crisis. We've got a cost of living crisis. We have this healthcare crisis. Where we have crises and where we have instability, extremist groups, extremist voices come into the space and try and um, ferment trouble and try and ferment even more discontent. And people turn to those kind of more extreme places for answers, both on the left and the right. And we know, you know, that this, where the, the more chaos we have, that the kind of more uncertainty it creates and the more we don't know who's whose voices are going to dominate and which policies are going to be pushed forward. I mean, in terms of Doris, I mean, she's at the DCMS, so she doesn't have any kind of power in terms of, of changing healthcare legislation. But I mean, this is something that she has wanted for a long time to t- um, reduce the abortion upper time limit. She first attempted to do it in 2008. Um, hopefully, we know from the fact that abortion um, legislation in the UK has improved over the last couple of years, suggests that there still is a majority for women's reproductive rights. But yeah, a lot of uncertainty. And I think one of the things that really strikes me this morning with um, all the sort of the kind of Westminster madness, the gossip, the who's going next, what's he going to do, what time is he going to come out of the, the front door, is, you know, there are huge amounts of issues that the UK is facing right now. The cost of living crisis is continually putting more and more people into poverty. There's this report that came out this week that 49% of um, households in relative poverty are headed by a single parent. You know, we we know that there are millions of children growing up in poverty. We know that the um, continuing rising cost of energy is going to make things even worse in the winter. We've also got these record waiting times on NHS waiting lists. You know, people who are really, really 
frightened, who are really struggling with ill health and not being able to get the care they need. We've got A-level results coming soon, GCSE results coming soon. You know, there are all sorts of people who urgently need a good functioning government that cares about what they what matters to them, that cares about their welfare, that cares about their well-being. And the longer this kind of madness goes on where it's just, you know, people people sort of looking after themselves rather than looking after the country, the more people are going to suffer. And that's really concerning. Let's bring in Ian, who's listening to us on Byline Radio or the Byline Times podcast. Hello, Ian. Welcome. Hi, all. Adrian. Uh, just a couple of quick points. Firstly, he's uh, Sam Allardyce available. <laughs> well, Sam did talk about the uh, the Roy Hodgson of British politics, oh, Theresa May, if yes. she's drafted in as a caretaker. I think Gary Lineker suggested Big Sam for the rest oh, of the... <laughs> the is the perfect fit. Um, on a, on, a, on um, a serious point, uh, I just want to go back to Paul's comments about the um, populism, yeah? And the thing about Johnson was, as you know, uh, obviously Tories won both West Brom seats, which are my neighbour seats, yeah? And um, it's only him who could have won it. Um, I don't think your standard Tory could have ever won those seats, even with the conditions at the time, Brexit and Corbyn and all that. There is no other person within that Tory party who's got that Johnson appeal that spreads into those areas. Um, You say that, Ian, sorry to cut across you, but it's been really interesting having these live discussions and podcast discussions with my colleague Adam Bienkoff, who is Byline Times Westminster and political correspondent. I understand what you're saying, and certainly seats like West Bromwich East, West Bromwich West form part of that traditional Labour voting red wall that turned Conservative in 29. But as Adam points out, If you look at the polling now around Johnson, and not just now, but over many, many months, he seems to have lost that shine. And Sam, I'll bring you in here because you you spoke about the the Wakefield by-election recently Mm. and how that Brexit superpower, which was part of the key to winning those red wall seats for Conservative MPs, he's lost that superpower now. Yeah, yeah, he has. He has definitely. I mean, our polling showed that um, people were less likely to vote for Johnson due to his Brexit position than Starmer due to his Brexit position, which is a wild state of affairs um, in the context of the last few years. I think I think the I think the point is right, though, in the sense if you if you compare 2019 to to now in the sense that no other conservative populist or I, I you know i struggle to think of any conservative politician could have won that size of majority um and the people who paul says you know the the oligarch press might try to install in downing street i i entirely agree they just don't have the political uh, dexterity the charm that um that johnson that johnson did i mean if you look at the polling <clears throat> excuse me on um, various different potential leadership candidates. Um, Priti Patel, who's obviously one of Johnson's closest acolytes, polls very badly, uh, as does Liz Truss. Uh, Michael Gove um, would, would, virtually, um, would virtually make the Conservative Party extinct if he was um, a prime ministerial candidate. Obviously, we can't neglect the fact that the media will try its absolute utmost to create a, a level of stardom 
around these individuals and to project them in a way that they don't exist in real life. Um, but I think I think Johnson was quite an exceptional political beast um, in many in good ways and and you know in terms of his personal and um, political success and in, in bad ways for, for the country at large. And I don't think we'll see anybody, or at least I don't see anybody in, on the immediate horizon. Um, perhaps Zahawi's the only one who gets close, who can match that sort of political um, political success. Yeah, let me put it to, let me put it to Ian, our, our caller, because, uh, I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not denying the, the way in which Johnson can appeal almost beyond traditional party boundaries. But in his case, was that not also allied to the relative weakness of Labour under Jeremy Corbyn and Brexit in particular? You know, Johnson needed those other things to kind of put wind in his sails. And oh. uh, he doesn't have Corbyn anymore and he, he doesn't have Brexit, or at least not in the way that he did back in 2019. Oh, for sure. Um, you got to remember, Johnson has always picked his opponents. So when he was London mayor, he ran for it when it was Ken Livingstone. Okay, so he could put himself in the moderate lane and appeal to both sides. Um, in nineteen or well seventeen, when he took over, he he knew he was against Corbyn. So he's always had the ability, the political nows, to pick his opponent and know where his opponent's weaknesses are. But the the real point is, from a Tory point of view, is if they pick a Jeremy Hunt, they lose West Bromwich seats. But they may secure some of the southern seats and Lib Dem ones. But if they go for a more, let's say, a radical person, they they could lose both. And if they and there is Johnson built up this image from Have I Got News for You when he was London Mayor doing all the stunts, all that kind of stuff, which no other Tory politician, as they're all politicians, they haven't been on Have I Got News for You. They haven't been writing columns and stuff, you know, the likes of Steve Baker and people like this are non-entities in, in the general public's world. Johnson was known by everybody. And because I haven't got that, comes back to the point I made yesterday, which um, Adam said wouldn't happen, is I really think Reading, we've got to be heading for a general election in October. Um, I, I can't see how any other leader that takes over in September stroke October can actually survive much beyond that, even with the majority, even if all the Tory MPs, because they will just have no public vote. Ian, thank you very much indeed. Let's bring in Paul Mason again. Paul, go on, you want to comment on this? Yes, uh, I think um, the, the the focus needs to be in the next... I mean, I'm already just monitoring Twitter now, uh, the numerous... Um, Serving ministers, ex-ministers, ex-ex-ministers are all saying Johnson shouldn't shouldn't hang on even until tonight. So the live issue of the kind of Johnsonian coup is definitely still on. You know what we started discussing on this uh, on on this uh, space when we started it. It's it's definitely still on. I think that you you've got to remember that the the, the, the deep factional division that that forced Sunak and. Um, Javid out is is over money because Johnson wants and wanted and Zahawi has signed up to basically borrow a load of money so that he can cut taxes 
And this country is already two trillion in debt. We've got a, a currency that's you know sliding. You know, some people in the city joke that it's like sliding towards an emerging market status. We've got double-digit inflation, and we've got a recession. And one thing you learn in being an economics journalist is that politicians can lie about anything else. They can cover things up. They can ignore major issues, but they cannot ignore economic pain. Um, and the 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 issue. The, the, the fundamental issue, I think it's even more fundamental than Brexit, because there'll be pro and anti-Brexiteers who will be on different sides of this, is shall the Conservative Party abandon any pretense at the small state and balance the books and do what Trump did, because this is the other Trumpian part of the moment, and simply borrow so they can just start handing money to businesses and households, because that's what Trump did. Um, I think that's what the fight's going to be about. Uh, and for us on the left, it, it creates a major danger or, or a major, you know, we've got a Labour Party that doesn't want to uh, express policy. When it does, it wants to express policy as if it's some kind of orthodox centrist liberal party. Um, but the, the big raging debate that starts tonight is to borrow and spend or to cut spending and to tax more and to increase the pain. And remember that Javid's letter said that. Sorry, not Javid. Sunak's letter said that. He said there are some things, if they sound too good to be true, they are too good to be true. He's basically saying Johnsonism was too good to be true. And so I think that it's very important that we, as we look absolutely towards those moments, at Tory party conference, maybe snap election, more likely I think May 2023 with a new leader, the, the issue is going to be um, Brexit. It's going to be Ukraine. That's the other thing, because because Sunak certainly has been it's been briefed by people close to Sunak that he's not keen on the Ukraine war. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, we, that we could get some backsliding on that. So there are major issues. They're all live issues in the Tory party. But what we must make sure is that we civil society, the left progressives are not spectators to that we've got to impose our own agenda and i think at some point that does mean going on the streets i don't want to do it now while there's a danger of a kind of right-wing backlash but i think that the the agenda will be set by the rmt by the unite the union by by people who just don't like the world the way it is you're listening to byline radio or on catch up the byline times podcast i'm adrian goldberg and don't forget, you can support the work of Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast by taking out a subscription to our brilliant monthly newspaper, The Byline Times. You get a proper inky newspaper and you can find out how to subscribe by going to our newsbreaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. And we like to say that the Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say. Let's just have a quick look at what the papers are saying today, the Daily Mail in an editorial saying the self-inflicted wounds are legion, but the truth is Mr Johnson still stands head and shoulders above any of his would-be assassins. The front page of The Sun today, exclusive defiant Boris's message to Tory rebels, you'll have to dip your hands in blood to get rid of me. That's what the papers do say. As I say, the Byline Times is what the papers don't say. Our editor is Hardeep Matharu, just putting, well, possibly the finishing touches, possibly not now, Hardeep, to this month's edition. Hi, Adrian. Yes, it's, um, it's all up in the air. We go to press next Thursday with our monthly print edition. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, we, we will see. I think we know what's going to lead uh, the newspaper. Yeah. 
So, yeah, in that sense, we, I suppose we'll be reflecting what the mainstream press does say, albeit perhaps saying slightly different things about it. And as I say, and part of the, the developing theme of this discussion, Hardeep, is Johnson's Trumpian moment. And there's some question mark, I suppose, about whether he really will attempt to, to stay on past the autumn. That is my fear. My personal fear is that having witnessed him over the last few days and having witnessed his premiership and the numerous attempts to kick difficult decisions into the long grass, that this may just be yet one another, uh, another one of those attempts and that come the autumn, maybe he'll have regrouped, maybe he'll have regathered and maybe Johnson will be seeking anyway to stay in Downing Street. Mm, I mean, it's definitely uh, anything is possible, Adrian, as we've seen from Boris Johnson's government. I think when we talk about the Trumpian element of him, though, I think as we've seen with Donald Trump in America and the Republican Party, I think it's whether Johnson is there or not, uh, the Trumpite Johnsonianism has uh, seeped into not just the Conservative Party, but our political culture. And I think, you know, even if he sticks to his word and he resigns, whether that's absolutely today, whether that's next week or whether he does indeed go in October after being this caretaker prime minister that he wants to. I think the the Trumpian sort of tactics remain because there's still significant numbers of MPs in the Conservative Party, which, you know, who have enabled him all of this way. Uh, they sat through Partygate, uh, the Owen Patterson affair, uh, the handling of the coronavirus crisis, all of this. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially endorsed him. Uh, I think that the Brexit project, while as a political force is, you know, Sam's probably talked about this, is is sort of losing its hold on people. You know, they want, Bre- they want Brexit done. They want it to be over, even though it's not. I think just the impact of it uh, has had such, you know, it's, it's, as I said, again, it seeped into our political culture and the political culture of the Conservative Party in such a way that I don't think there is just going to be an immediate shift away from Johnson's brand of uh, sort of almost authoritarian populism uh, that's premised around sort of these these patriotic themes about Britain with no vision and no policies as to how to actually improve people's lives. So for me, the most d- dangerous element um, of Johnson and his sort of comparisons to Trump is, as we're seeing in America now, Trump may not be the president. I mean, he may come back, but he's not the president. But the sort of legacy he has left behind, we're still seeing played out. We're seeing that with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I think similarly here, you know, just watch sort of, um, you know, all the news channels this morning. There are various conservative MPs, uh, very Brexity conservative MPs, all of whom supported Johnson for a long time, saying they want to stand as the leader. So I just don't see how just because Johnson goes or tenders a resignation, suddenly there's going to be a massive shift uh, away from his brand of populism, which, as other people um, have discussed this morning, um, in, in your session, has you know gained them great power. You know, they won a massive majority with it. Boris Johnson is a kind of figure who brought together different constituencies, and I think that's obviously the challenge for the Tories now. But 
I, I just don't see that losing its grip entirely. I think politics has been fundamentally changed by what's happened in the last few years. And yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I, I, think that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting insight, Hardeep, in the sense that Trump has gone, but Trumpism hasn't. Mm. And Johnson goes, Johnsonism won't, I suppose. And as an example of that, and I don't know if Sam wants to comment on this, as an example of that, we've seen Keir Starmer in the last few days ruling out any attempt by the Labour Party in future to seek to rejoin the European Union, and not only to not rejoin the EU, but also ruling out the return of Britain to the single market, and also saying that there will be no further freedom of movement you know britain won't affect you know, what what many people thought i think that labor might commit to would be not rejoining the eu but nevertheless joining the single market and with that freedom of movement returning so the fact that starmer has said that won't happen certainly under his leadership mm. i think is a de- you know whether that's right or wrong but is a demonstration i think of where mainstream UK politics has been taken to as a result of Johnson. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think this is clearly part of Starmer's political calculus that he doesn't want to fight the next election on Johnson or the Brexit turf in general, the culture war territory, um, because he knows that as soon as he suggests that we might go back into the single market and the customs union. That um, issues of immigration will will get will get raised uh, once again. And I think you know, I think Starmer's position is probably more uh, tentative and, and small c conservative than he could reach for. But the fact is that Labour got its hands really badly burnt in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, you know, the worst election performance since the 1930s um, in a Brexit election. And so I think it's understandable and perfectly reasonable and rational for Starmer to take a, to take a more cautious position um, into the next election. And then if he wins power, um, you know, I, I imagine, the, I mean, if you look at the ways in which Labour is seeking to rectify our relationship with the EU, um, in terms of fixing the Northern Ireland Protocol, in terms of uh, removing barriers to trade. What they're saying at the minute is very vague, but basically the only way to solve it, to solve all those issues substantially, is by, you know, a customs union single market um, agreement, or at least significantly closer alignment in terms of regulations, rules, um, etc. with the single market and the customs union. And I think our polling shows that at the minute people are very willing for the Labour Party to hammer Johnson on the outcomes of his Brexit. Uh, in the medium term they want Britain to have a closer relationship with the EU but they're not ready yet or at least the demographic groups that really matter to a general election uh, and to Labour regaining power particularly in the Red Wall. They're not willing yet to hear from Labour that we should rejoin the single market, the customs union, and reopen the debate more fundamentally. I think as 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 the dividends of Brexit fail to materialise, Labour will be able to start to make that argument. I know that Starmer says that you know it will never be on the table, um, but I think that a, a substantially closer arrangement with the EU, uh, where we're basically within the single market and the customs union, we could feasibly see 
merely based on the direction of public opinion um, if Labour wins the next election. Yeah. Uh, Paul Mason, there's this phrase, isn't there, the Overton window, which is all about describing what at any given moment seems politically possible, what is acceptable to discuss. And I don't want to focus this much too much on Keir Starmer, because really we're talking about Johnson's Trump moment and uh, his impending resignation. But I think it's just worth reflecting a little bit on, on the alternative that Labour presents. And we have a Labour leader who uh, is kind of sidestepping the the rejoining issue or, or firmly ruling it out, really, but also a Labour leader who tells members of the shadow cabinet that they can't join picket lines, for example, when workers are striking simply for cost of living or less than cost of living wage increases. So there certainly isn't any sense of a, a radical alternative out there to Johnson from Labour under Starmer. Well, the, it, it's it, in some ways it's worse than that. There is there isn't any sense of a, of an alternative in terms of policy. Uh, the, there is one big policy that Labour announced, and that was the twenty eight billion a year Green New Deal investment program that will be done through borrowing. Uh, that is still the policy, uh, despite Peter Mandelson trying to question whether it is a good idea. Um, but since Rachel Reeves announced that at the last conference, um, there have been little bits of incremental, this would be a good idea. The other bit of Labour policy that people often remind us uh, inside Labour is the uh, is the commitment to a comprehensive reform, comprehensive reform of the uh, of the labour market of trade union rights. Now, it, however. Um, the fact that this Labour doesn't have a, a policy platform, I think is it's also worth pointing out, it hardly has any candidates at the moment in the places it needs to win. It's still picking candidates. The Tories finalised their candidates last week, interestingly enough. Um, so if we get to an early general election, I think um, I would be worried about an uneven contest. However, what I think Labour has done spectacularly well during the, this final denouement of Johnson is it's it looked like a party that could govern. It's looked disciplined. It looked very com, you know sort of competent and also uh, morally sort of uh, of good standing. You know, I mean, there are probably all sorts of dodgy stuff uh, inside the PLP. I, I've been on the inside where Dominic Cummings met you know did one of these uh lists when you're doing a reshuffle and and you go through the list and you know he's got a sex abuse sex case hanging over him he's a gambler blah 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 she blah 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 i think there'll be that inside the plp or inside any party but the front bench i think have stood very strongly on a moral high ground over this and i think they can only grow and starmer can only grow in stature the other thing that's got to be said is um, on Ukraine. Uh, while, while we've been on air, Boris Johnson has been phoning Zelensky, say, reassuring him. Uh, no, what I don't think he can reassure Zelensky uh, of the solidity of this of the Sunak wing. Uh, it's been reported in the Sunday Times that Sunak, you know, is not that keen on the Ukraine war. But the other thing that Labour's done is absolutely stand 100% solidly behind Ukraine. And I think that has removed a huge stick that could have been used 
to beat Labour with uh, had, you know, there been a significant kind of no sanctions, no arms to Ukraine faction within the PLP. That faction is down to one and it's Jeremy and he's not in the PLP. Um, so I think I, I'm very buoyed by the way Labour has handled this crisis. I thought that Starmer was superb yesterday. I thought the, the women on the front bench, Lisa Nandi, you know, uh, uh, Angela Rayner and others have been superb in handling this moral moral sort of meltdown of the Tory party. We've got to remember that that is what matters to people, but what matters even more is cost of living. And I believe that as long as Labour can put forward a, a realistic, believable cost of living solution over the next six months, then we're looking at a Labour government. Mm. Uh, Sean, of course, we have to remember we've had a Conservative government, not since Boris Johnson was elected in 2019, but since 2010. Yeah. And during those years, more than a decade, issues that you care very deeply around, inequality, sorry, can you put up the microphone, please? I'll mute it for you. Hardeep's microphone came on there. I'll just mute it. If you can mute your microphone when you're not on. There we go. I've done it again, Hardeep. Um, if you can mute your microphone when you're not talking, that would be great. Um, yeah, Sean, I was talking about you know some of the issues that you care deeply about and that you mm. write a lot about. Inequality, poverty. These things have, have been getting worse, not just since Johnson came to power, but but for years before that. I think one of the biggest tricks the Johnson administration pulled off was that it was not part of the 10 years or, or nine years of the previous Conservative administrations. You know, 2010, the coalition came into power headed by David Cameron with the Liberal Democrats as a partner. Then in 2015, we had a David Cameron majority, very small one, but a majority nonetheless. And then, of course, there was Brexit. Theresa May was in power and then Johnson in 2019. And yet in 2019, you know, the rhetoric coming out of the government was, you know, like, we're going to fix these problems. We're going to fix what's come before. We're going to replace the 20,000 police officers as if it wasn't the Conservatives that cut the 20,000 police officers. It was always this performance that, like, they had no responsibility for what trouble the country was in, from the impact of Brexit to the impact of austerity. So, I mean, one of the defining policies since 2010 has been austerity. And we've seen that you know, the sort of dismantling of the welfare state, which has pushed more and more people into poverty. Um, we know that this was incredibly gendered. Um, research done very early on in the austerity years by the Labour Party found that around 80% of the cost of the cuts was coming out of women's purses. We also have a housing crisis and we have this healthcare crisis. And we know that when COVID hit, one of the reasons the UK struggled so much was because of austerity, because there had been this, you know, draining away of funds in terms of preventative health. And also the fact that when people are living in poverty, when people are living in poor housing, when there's huge levels of deprivation, that has a massive impact on health outcomes. And so I think, you know, this is really concerning that the, the kind of government was allowed to get away with pretending that they bore no responsibility for the social crisis we found ourselves in before 2019 and that have continued throughout 20, um, since 2019. Um, and I guess, you know, the big promise that we had from Boris Johnson beyond get Brexit done, you know, we can argue about whether that happened, um, was this levelling up agenda 
And I mean, Sam knows more about this than me. I mean, he's, his reporting on levelling up and where it's not working has been absolutely stellar. But I think we all have a lot of questions to ask, like, what is levelling up for a start? What does it actually mean? And how is it actually happening? Because most people are not seeing their towns regenerated. They're not seeing their living standards improve. If anything, we're still in this really, really scary decline. Well, Sam, I know you've got to head off, Sam, but do you want to talk about that? You, uh, you wrote, obviously, about Fortress London uh, in your recent book and about how London is sort of disproportionately governing the rest of the UK and absorbing its resources and its energy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really remarkable the past few days, Boris Johnson saying, oh, uh, I still want to govern and get on and deliver for, for the country. Deliver what exactly? Deliver what? Like in in you know the last few years, he's delivered um, tens of thousands of people needlessly dying from coronavirus. He hasn't delivered levelling up to any great degree. Um, in fact, the the whole project's been has been diluted um, because of his losses in um, the so-called blue wall in the south. He's now had to stretch the project beyond comprehension. Um, There were reports um, from the Northern Powerhouse project that, in fact, Boris Johnson planned to spend less on English regional development than either David Cameron or Theresa May. So, you know, regardless of the rhetoric, in practice, he fundamentally just didn't agree with the the idea. He then sacked his levelling up secretary, leaving a massive hole in that department, um he replaced his chancellor you know you know the man with the uh with the purse strings um leading to complete chaos in terms of the government's priorities of where it would spend its money as paul has suggested um which i think this is perhaps one of the least focused on aspects of this this last few months and potentially one of the most damaging is this new free market low tax small state trend within the Conservative Party. You know, Boris Johnson was suggesting that um, he may be able to retain some support in the Conservative Party um, by promising tax cuts. Um, This is precisely the time when we need a, you know, need a robust state um, that helps people in dire need at the minute, rather than handing big corporations that have rated in during the pandemic and are making huge profits handing them a tax cut. It's just, it's, it's absurd. And so, um, yeah, I re- and, and then on top of that, um, deporting vulnerable people um, across the world to Rwanda, or at least seeking to, repeatedly wanting to break the law, um, to, to bulldoze the Northern Ireland Protocol that they signed a few years earlier. It's, it's, it's pure vanity. It's pure ego that Boris Johnson wanted to remain in post. Um, he 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 knows surely that he's not able to deliver on and um, what he has promised or 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 what I mean I was going to say or what he believes but I don't think he fundamentally believes anything and um, yeah and that that's the big worry that um, the next person who follows him will be similarly vacuous on the policy front as well.
Yeah, Hardeep uh, is still with us as well, the editor of the Byline Times. And uh, Hardeep, uh, I've seen a tweet this morning from Rick. He's referencing uh, leaks to Sky News, uh, in which he's reporting that Johnson and his team are planning a load of huge policy decisions in the months before he goes. So, again, this plays to this sense that, I'm, you know, I, I keep coming back to this, that this is not a man who's going to go quietly. Yeah, I mean, another aspect of this, Adrian, I think, in terms of the Trumpian, uh, you know, Trumpism without Trump, um, is how much fundamentally um, in this country what we're seeing with Johnson is, he, you know, he's acting as if he's a president. And this presidential uh, style uh, or culture of governance has, has really taken hold. And I think... You know, in terms of Brexit and the whole project around that, um, Boris and the way those campaigns were run really did change politics. And I think even though we saw it beginning, I mean, to some extent, you know, our system is a parliamentary system, but prime ministers have always seen themselves quite presidentially. You definitely saw that under New Labour with Tony Blair. But definitely under Boris Johnson's administration, there has been a sense that, it's, um, you know, that has accelerated even more that the prime minister is actually governing in a presidential way. The cabinet doesn't have much influence on what's going on. And obviously, as, as Johnson has kept saying, I've got a mandate from the people, even though nobody hasn't got a personal mandate because we have a parliamentary system. But I guess what I'm trying to say in terms of what we're going to see, of course, you know, these big policy announcements, it'll be more slogans. If he does announce things, it'll be more broad brush sort of campaigning. And I think in terms of anyone who replaces Johnson, uh, it's the legacy, which is almost, you know, the, the Trumpist legacy is that the acceleration of the presidential style of governance we've seen under Johnson will be carried through. And I think anyone who stands for the leadership of the Conservative Party will have will see themselves as having to project a presidential um, a presidential campaign, if you like, which really revolves around their personality. So I think personalities, Johnson's legacy in politics, I think, will be the fact that, pop, you know, um, whether we like it or not, personalities are really important. And and that skews um, that that necessarily skews our political system because we don't have a presidential system; we have a parliamentary system, and that's that's why it's concerning that so many people who are putting themselves forward and saying they're going to stand for the leadership, many of whom supported Johnson. I I think they will continue in that vein. I think we'll get more. I don't think we're going to see an end of this sort of personality-driven uh, presidential style politics based on campaigns and slogans. Uh, I don't think all candidates. You know, I don't think all people who put themselves forward will necessarily uh, completely go for that. But I think generally that has changed. And obviously that leads to questions about the Labour Party and its leadership and how it responds to that. Um, but, yeah, it, that, that's been something really interesting. And I get, again, that Trumpian sense of, uh, you know, it's all about the personality of one man. And I think... I think that's going to continue. I don't think that's good for our democracy or our political system because it necessarily pits, puts the personality of one person over genuinely the will of the people. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see how Labour responds to that.
Do you have any sense, Hardeep, this is very difficult, I know, because it's such a fluid situation, of who might replace Boris Johnson, assuming he is replaced, and I say that, I keep saying this with a kind of slightly cheeky grin, assuming he is replaced in the autumn, who might that replacement be? I don't know, Adrian. Absolutely no idea. I don't know. I don't have any sense of who that might be at all, because I think there's a big split down the party. Um, yeah, candidates like Jeremy Hunt are very different from candidates like Suela Braverman, um, Rishi Sunak, I guess. But, you know, the scandal around his wife's finances, her non-don status and the whispers that he actually doesn't want the job because of all the, the sort of hassle that goes goes with it. I don't know. I don't know. I think it, I suspect it may be a candidate coming through who perhaps isn't in any either of those camps, you know, either sort of one nation Tory or Johnsonian. I suspect it might be someone who comes through the middle who we're not seeing yet as a natural candidate. But I, I just don't know. I mean, it, it could be anyone. I, I don't think it's going to be anyone sort of like Pretty Patel or Suella Braverman or sort of um, Jacob Rees-Mogg or any of any of those. But yeah, I think it's all up for grabs and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Absolutely. Well, listen, Hardy, I know you've got to uh, get back to editing the uh, paper. Thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been great to have you. Thanks also uh, to Paul Mason and to Sam Bright, who have been with us. It's been great having your contributions. Much appreciated. And um, it will, uh, Sean Norris is still with us. I'm delighted to say, if you want to join in as well, if you've got uh, any comments that you want to offer, any questions that you want to ask, by all means, do so. We've been kind of getting a bit of a brains trust from the by Byline Times with us and that new edition of the Byline Times is being prepared at the moment but if you would uh, like to take out a subscription that would be a great thing to do and it will help us to continue with our great work here on Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast so find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com that's a bylinetimes.com yeah Sean go on you want to come back in I think Yes, I probably have to go fairly soon, but I did want to um, raise one other issue before I did leave. I think it's really important that we remember that what has triggered this particular crisis, I mean, we know that Johnson has faced multiple scandals this year from Partygate, you know, to the kind of um, issues around the cost of living crisis, all of these things. But this particular incident was triggered by the pinch allegations. And these were allegations of a serious serious sexual assaults against men, um, most recently in the Carlton Club, but more and more allegations are coming out. There was a really um, moving interview um, last night on Channel 4 News with one of his um, alleged victims. Pincher denies the allegations. You know, we're at a situation where I think there are a total of 56 MPs who are being investigated for sexually inappropriate behaviour. We know that there's this real culture at the moment of misogyny and sexism in Parliament. And I think while we talk about, you know, the sort of the drama of the resignations, the chaos that is reigning in Downing Street, the, the speculation about what is coming next, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that there are victims of severe sexual assaults and sexual harassment in Westminster at the moment. And their lives and their experiences aren't pawns in a political game. They should have been listened to, they should have been believed. And it's, you know, frankly shameful that it has come to this, that the culture in Westminster has become so rotten and so toxic that, you know, these allegations have led to the downfall of a prime minister. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
we've referenced it more than once in this discussion, Sean. You know, the other really big issues that people are facing in this country, you know, it, it's been played out very much as a, you know, a psychodrama, one person, will he go, will he stay, and all this. Meantime, some very hard-up people are having to make tough decisions today about how much food they eat, whether they'll need the heating on. Thankfully, we're in summertime and it's not too chilly a day, but you you get where I'm coming from. How much petrol to put in their tank if they're, if they're lucky enough to have a car. So many people facing really, really hard moments in their lives and the main action of our government seems to be whether or not to replace its leader. It's that there is a dissonance there, I think, between life as it's lived by many people in this country and what the representation of our leaders is anyway in the media. Absolutely. I mean, as we've been on air, um, I had a piece published on Byline Times about the um, impact of debt on low-income families. We now, um, research from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation has found that 76% of people on universal credit are struggling, to, are going without essentials. That means going without food, that means going without heating. Um, when that time comes, you know, it's absolutely boiling in my flat at the moment, but we all know it's going to get cold and the energy prices are going to go up. We also know now that people on low incomes have taken on £12.5 billion worth of private new private debt in this year. This is more than half of the total of private debt. People are really, really struggling. And one of the things that has really come out in the last you know, 24 hours with all of these resignations is that we don't have a government. There's nobody, there's nobody working in the ministries. There's no ministers dealing with these crises. And that, you know, at this point, we, we really need a stable, strong government, to use that Theresa May phrase, obviously she never provided it, um, in order to, to meet these very, very difficult challenges. And it goes back to my point about sexual harassment as well. This is people's lives. This is people's experiences. You know, there are people all over the country who have... Um, experience sexual harassment we have half a million incidents of sexual harassment and sexual assault every year and they're looking at government and seeing these cover-ups at seeing men defending men at seeing victims being ignored disbelieved brushed aside it's not healthy and it's not it's not caring it's 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 a nightmare frankly and I, I think you know a lot of victims and survivors of sexual assault and sexual harassment are feeling you know triggered let down and and angry that this pain and this crime and this bad behaviour has been treated with such, you know, callousness by the government. Sean, thank you very much indeed. Let's bring in uh, Oh Hello Troll, who, just to reassure you, is not a troll. We've spoken to Oh Hello Troll on more than one occasion. Hello, Hello Troll. You're right. Thank, thank you so much for, for that introduction. Um, I, I think um, I, I've been listening to to to, to this uh, session since uh, since the beginning, and um, there's a couple of points. Um, the first one uh, uh, was somebody asked uh, about Keir Starmer and uh, he's he's basically walked back on that policy that he basically won the Labour Party mandate for, uh, that he would um, seek to rejoin the EU or at least seek to rejoin the single market. And he's now gone back. I did, uh, I did have a bit of a wobble on Keir Starmer when he announced that he would not be doing that. Um, and the reason why that's important is because um, I'm sort of registered in uh, in uh, Kensington um, uh, Borough, right? So, and w which is um, right now um, a Tory, and 
but the lead between the Tory and the um, and the Labour candidates is, I think, just about forty votes. And previously, it was the first time that the Labour ca- uh, Labour candidate had won, and I did vote for Labour in that election. And it was the lead was twenty. So it's all, uh, so for the last two elections, it's it's neck and neck between Tory and um, uh, Kensington, and Kensington is sort of Tory, but also quite international in a, in the sense that there are quite quite a lot of wealthy people who are from or at least were uh, at the time of, uh, from across Europe. And it, it, you see quite a lot of people coming in from around the world and they so, uh, it might be their temporary place to stay. So it's it's quite risky to say for, for Keir Starmer it, to announce that policy where we've seen in the last election where we thought that Labour was was having massive wins against in the last uh, by-elections, that Labour was having massive... But the biggest um, winner was basically Lib Dems and the Green Party. So it, 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 it's not as foolproof of a policy for uh, Keith Starmer to say that. I wish he'd actually not oh, I, said I, I, that. I, when, when you say that, I, I understand what you mean. And it, it's this weird thing, and it's something that we try and explore quite a lot on Byline Times, which is the power of the media in this country and the if Keir Starmer said he wanted to rejoin the European Union or wanted to rejoin the single market uh, and have freedom of movements again he would be absolutely slaughtered by the press in this country as Jeremy Corbyn was now you can argue, I suppose, that he can have the if he believes in rejoining the EU. I don't know if he really believes that, but if he does, that he should have the courage of his convictions and say, "Okay, this is what I believe in." On the other hand, if it's going to get him slaughtered by the right wing press, and if they are able to scare people off from voting Labour, then it'll be a pretty high price to pay, won't it? Well, uh, but but that's that, that's what my point was. To I wish he'd rather not said anything at all on that, because um, the Tories are basically getting um, they're they're basically being told off by everybody uh, right now, even by their own party uh, uh, about the policies. I wish he he hadn't said anything at all about that. So it might actually be putting off a lot of people um, uh, in who support the Labour Party or who have supported the Labour Party to actually vote for him. So it might actually dissuade some people from from voting him. But I I, I sort of uh, had a, a a change of heart again, and I said I think I will be voting Labour, uh, and I I I hope to see Emma Denton Code or whoever the uh, Labour candidate to take uh, to uh, to be elected in Kensington Borough again. Because I, 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 but but yes, that's the point. The other point, um, the other sort of question I have is that we've we've all been talking about that what Boris Johnson has done is unprecedented in in his staunchness and his stubbornness. But ha- is there any sort of history of anybody doing that? Like going back whatever many years, not just the last hundred years, um, and. How have we got to this point where we don't have any guardrails in terms of somebody who's so stubborn that he's refusing to leave office, uh, even though we don't have a written constitution? But surely there must have been something. Yeah, well, I, that's, a, that's a very good point. And uh, again, at the, at the risk of repeating myself, that's something that, that Byline Times has hi- highlighted a number of occasions that really 
the British Constitution, or what we call the British Constitution, relies on decent people doing the right thing. Now, <laughs> and broadly, you know, whatever the political slant of individuals at the top of government, most people have understood when their time has come and they've accepted the inevitability of their de political demise. But when you have people who are not good actors, people who are not acting in good faith, because so much of it operates on a nudge and a wink and on a basis of historical precedence, then it's very much more difficult to say, well, look, you've crossed this line now. You have to go. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just isn't there. It just isn't written down. I know there have been people who've campaigned for a written British constitution, but, you know, they're also, in any political system, there has to be a recognition, doesn't there, of, of what is acceptable behaviour and what is not. Uh, I, I do agree. Uh, I mean... <laughs> But uh, this is the thing, like the uh, the uh, the goalpost of acceptable behavior has been moving so far beyond the absurd recently with Boris Johnson that it it's rather uh, it, it would be rather it would be like saying uh, uh, just basically ex being exasperated and saying oh it's just what it is now it's just what it is now that that's the danger of having a having no guardrails and having no written constitution it's because people will just say oh it's it, it is what it is now basically we can't do anything people will feel powerless because yeah. specifically because there's nothing written yeah 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 well here's here's a question for you do you think do you trust boris johnson even if he quits as leader of the conservative party uh, which he's doing today he's not yet quitting as prime minister now th there may well be some pushback against this by the way and you know the suggestion is from some westminster sources that there will be some conservative mps who are not happy with this you know who say that uh, you know th they want johnson gone full stop but if he is there until the autumn do you actually trust him to go then no I, I I actually think that he would be bringing about more chaos if he's uh, he's left in the office. I think he should be removed immediately. I I, I sort of did pass around the Houses of Parliament uh, number ten uh, yesterday. Um, there was a helicopter hovering for quite some time, and I just sort of made a joke to my friends, saying that maybe they want to lift him out of the 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 number ten garden where he had the cheese and wine parties, you know, forcefully. Um, uh, uh, no, uh, I, I do not trust him at all. Uh, uh, but at the same time, I don't trust any of the top Tory leaders uh, right now because of their the agenda they have been pushing recently uh, with the Human Rights Commission. The policing bill went through, and you know the protest went bill went through, etc. And all of these things combined, I do not trust any of the top Tory leadership at the moment. Mm. So, uh, uh, so then, the, I mean, this begs the question: Do we constitutionally need? A general election. I mean, clearly that isn't in the system at the moment. But when you have a situation where the leader no longer has the confidence of his party, do you think that should trigger a general election? Because part of Johnson's argument was, effectively, you voted for me, that he believed he had a mandate. Now, 
I think I've challenged that quite robustly on this spaces and suggested he didn't have a mandate as an individual. His party had a mandate under the first past the post system that we have. But if you take Johnson at face value, he says, well, people voted for me. Well, fine. But he and that was his argument for seeking to stay on. But if he no longer has the support, then should there be a general election at this moment? It's again at the behest of whoever is elected leader, right? Mm. And I, mm. I, I do think that that is uh, wrong, even even if it was Labour or, or even Green Party or uh, Lib Dems or anybody. I think that is wrong. If you lose your leader, I don't think a leader should be uh, like uh, should be replaced from within the the party. I, I, I do believe that there should be a general election because not only so uh, th- and this situation is actually quite worse. Because not only did he lose um, the trust of his party, he lost the trust of his own cabinet ministers. They've been resigning left, right and centre. It's like it's a record breaking day for resignations yesterday. And the resignation yeah, that, that kept coming. Is, I, I love the quote earlier by Mark Austin, the uh, the TV reporter. Mark Austin said, I'm, I'm going out to walk the dog. I'll be back in three or four resignations <laughs> which I thought was just very witty. <laughs> anyway, Troll, thank you very much indeed. Let's thank uh, you. welcome Byline Times Executive Editor Peter Jukes to the conversation. And uh, Peter, I- I'm sceptical of whether Johnson will go in the autumn. What about you? Oh, no. I mean, the interesting thing is I've had various messages, and we've often talked about this, that Boris is a slow-motion insurrection without uh, you know, militia men storming the capital that he'll trash every institution and break every rule. But I think the logic of this is just too ineluctable. Um, you know, the, the fact is forced into a resignation saying, what was it last night? You know, they will have to dip their hands in my blood or something. Um, mm. it, it, you know, the, the Conservative Party is famously described in the 19th century as a conspiracy to gain power. And the power has drained away from Johnson and they will be ruthless with him. So... I mean, there could be, you know, we know with Johnson, a lot of chaos, comings and goings. But in a way, the guardrails have worked. He did reach the end of limit of his power. If he can't appoint the cabinet, if he is not trusted as a caretaker prime minister, you know, that will be expressed through these means. Um, The problem is, isn't it, that we are still relying on on protocols on you know norms of behavior and as we've seen we he's broken most of them and uh, i think that's the bigger project because johnson's going whatever way he's going i mean in a way he's been in office but not in power since the own Paston thing definitely since he only just really you know won a lower majority than theresa may on the vote of confidence having uh, you know two weeks three weeks ago having lost 75% of his backbenchers and then his lesser lost in the last few days, like 30% of his own government. Um, but so, you know, without power, what can he do? The, 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 the larger scale thing is what's wrong with our constitution that it goes this way. And even more saliently, isn't it? I'm sure you've been talking about that is what happens when those price increases hit 3000 pounds per household for energy bills 
in August. Um, so it's a big distraction from the greater things at foot. And one of the things I think to really be missed, I don't know if you've been talking about it because we're getting the print edition together, which is obviously changing every moment. But the revelations yesterday about he confirmed this meeting with a former KGB officer, Alexander Lebedev, having while foreign secretary, having lost his escort, he goes, flies to Perugia and is found in a disheveled state the next morning and goes to meet a former KGB officer who we now know was offering him a back channel to Putin in the days and weeks after Putin had assassinated, well, tried to assassinate some Skripal, Sergei Skripal, with a nerve agent and inadvertently killed a British citizen. That is Profumo on steroids. People who can't remember Profumo, I can't quite remember it, John Perfumo, but I remember the context, which is he was having an affair with a woman who was also having an affair with a Russian spy in the 60s. And for lying to Parliament once, apparently, he was forced to resign, lived the rest of his life trying to serve out in public service. This is Boris Johnson going unescorted as Foreign Secretary to uh, a Russian oligarch's uh, apartment, uh, rather his villa near Perugia, Villa Terranova. And, you know, and, you know, with a former KGB agent just after a nerve agent attack on the UK, that story, which emerged yesterday, kind of buried by the papers, is still unexplained and in itself, you know, would have been a scandal in normal days to have rocked the government. Well, indeed, and uh, we've touched on the relationship between Johnson and uh, Lebedev's son, Egveni Lebedev, of course, the editor and the owner, not the editor, the, the owner of the I newspaper, of the Evening Standard at different times, and awarded a peerage against the advice of the people who make these decisions in the in the House of Lords. You know, it, 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 just to correct you, Adrian, I think he's yeah. the uh, owner of the Independent, the I newspaper has, uh, has yeah, gone, so. in, is a separate organisation now. You're right. But yes, a, a big booster, Adam Bienkov has documented the long relationship between Johnson and the son, Evgeny Lebedev, uh, right from the early days as the mayor. The standard is, is London's paper boosted Johnson consistently. And this is the shocking thing. I mean, I know Roy's banging on about this. Otto English, who hopefully will be joining us soon, um, wrote about this in 2019, security concerns about the closeness between Johnson and the Lebedevs. And it's Alexander Lebedev who has the money. He's withdrawn from the company. But he was a kind of station chief to the KGB in London. And then John Sweeney revealed a year and a half ago that he had been appointed as a Lord Evgeny the Sun against security advice baron of hampton and siberia needed putin's permission and then a few months later revealed that italian security services mm -hmm. said that alexander was still very close to putin the canadians have sanctioned alexander lebedev for being one of putin's inner circle so in all this sort of it was funny that the last thing to topple him was was well, not funny it's it's kind of indicative and tragic was an allegation of sexual misconduct and him covering up for his close friend, by the way, and deputy chief with uh, Pincher. But there are bigger, more serious um, stories that have been distracted, we've been distracted from matters of huge state and, and international importance 
and which has been going on for a long time. Obviously, the accumulation of this inverted pyramid of piffle, the last, I don't know, bit of piffle, if you like, was Pincher. But I hope and I trust that investigations will be underway in Parliament, maybe in other places too, about how these series of scandals were allowed to go unremarked, unreported, uninvestigated for six years. I mean, the first of it is the vote leave overspending. I read, read a really great piece in the London Review of Books by Ferdinand Mount, who said whether well, allegations of law breaking by vote leave Boris Johnson's Brexit campaign, but they turned out to be nothing. Well, they weren't. They were investigated and they were found guilty of overspending. So the the moment of inception of Boris Johnson's rise to power, vote leave, was founded in lawlessness. They were the methods that criminal investigation. But found there. Now we go back. So many other things. The PPE contracts, which obviously Sam Bright you've had on, has done a brilliant job with other Ballad Times writers investigating. That is still, we know there are NCA investigations that there is a mountain of problems there. Is another indicative use of power of Johnson's administration that isn't over. And then finally, the Russian effect. You know, what to what extent was Brexit compromised by Russian interference? To what extent are British politicians particularly concerned answering to the needs and requests of high value Russian oligarchs? That era of British history, which hopefully is coming to a close, will never be resolved fully until we investigate it and stop it happening again. Mm. Uh, very interesting stuff, Peter. Uh, it's uh, one or two Conservative MPs, certainly from my reading, are quite adamant that Johnson should go now. You know, they they, they don't trust him as I don't. Uh, <laughs> That's going to be the next one, isn't it? I mean, remember yeah. that famous Sun headline: "Squatter in Number Ten of Gordon Brown, not so English." Famous said <laughs> they could have that same headline today. <laughs> it just coloured the hair. Gordon Brown's hair yellow. Um, nobody trusts him. The problem of trust, of abuse of power, remains as long as is there. So the battle is going to be to make sure he has no power. But let's be clear. He has been losing power ever since the Owen Patterson affair. And this is the last little residue. Does he give Dacre a lordship? You know. And, and the other question is, What's going to happen next, Adrian? Whether he stays or goes, we have a leadership contest. What does a Conservative Party leadership contest really mean? Well, it means for the third time in the last 10 years, our next Prime Minister will be determined by an electorate of 150,000 people, i.e. the Conservative Party membership, some tiny fraction of the UK population. And what will they be listening to? A cabal of mainly non-domiciled news proprietors, i.e. Lebedev, Barclay, uh, Rodemir and Murdoch, telling them who they want their next prime minister to be. And all the kowtowing and favours and secret lunches and dinners with newspaper proprietors will just go on in this summer and will be delivered to us 
who, you know, by the Conservative Party, who has won this beauty contest? What kind of democracy is this? And so when we talk about the Constitution and the failures in that, the lack of safeguards, the fact that had Johnson got his way, he would have delivered the problem to a 96-year-old person who doesn't want to get into politics, i.e. the Queen, if he'd called for another election. But actually, the other huge structural problem with our country, and Hadi Mathari, editor, is brilliant on this. It's not just my obsession. All our team understand this, is the media. Five men, five men, you know, many non-domiciled, will have a huge effect for the third time on who our next prime minister would be. Indeed, Peter. And we'll explore that more, uh, I'm sure, in uh, much greater depth as we have done in the past as well, uh, significantly. But we've had, listen, we've had a, a really interesting hour and a half. It's been fascinating. Thank you to you. Thank you to Hardik Matharu, who's busy working away on the wonderful new edition of the Byline Times newspaper, and to writers like Sam Bright, Paul Mason, Sean Norris as well. And thank you to all of you who have taken part. And if you want to support the work that we do on Byline Times, investigating, probing away, not making life easy for those who have power in our country, trying to hold them to account, then please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. It is a great read. Hardeep is busy working on it at the moment. We've got a wonderful news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, where you can read many of these fine writers as well. And, uh, in so doing, you'll be helping to support the work of the podcast and Byline Radio as well. So thank you, Peter. Thank you, everyone. Um, Cheers. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.